Let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do praise you again and thank you. Lord, we thank you for your word and the joy that we have of studying it together. And Lord, we pray over these next few minutes that, Lord, you would speak to us by, the, by your written word. Lord, help us to see what you've placed there in the text as guide and instruction for how we should live. But God, I pray that as that gets lived out individually, as your still small voice, as your spirit moves in our hearts and minds, Lord, speak that we might understand how best we can apply what you've placed in this text. And God, I pray that as I speak, Lord, may the meditation of my heart and the words that come out of my mouth be pleasing in your sight. God, if there's anything that I say that is out of line with you and your word, take that out of our minds, that only what is of you will be remembered. Help us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have your copy of God's Word and would like to open to the book of Hebrews, let me encourage you to do that. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 13, the very last chapter of the book. And uh, as we go into this today, we are going to do a big chunk today and a small chunk next week, but we've changed plans a little bit. So we're going to do a small chunk today, a little bigger chunk next week, and then we'll finish the whole book with a good summary of the benediction that is happening. And while you're turning there, I want you to just think about something. I don't know if you've had an opportunity to travel to other cultures, to other parts of our country that are different than where we are. But if you've ever gone someplace else, it's sometimes good to get a feel for what might be acceptable um, actions and what actions might be taboo. Because otherwise, you may end up Making a fool of yourself and embarrassing yourself. For instance, in, in, there was one time when I was traveling overseas and I noticed that when people would call people over, like here in America, when we say, hey, would you come here? We, we might go like this or we might say, hey, come on. But I noticed when I was in this other country that they would go like this. I said, what, what does that mean? And so I asked one of the guys I was with, why do you do that? He said, well, that's just how we call people. And I said, oh, well, in our country, we, we go like this. He said, oh, no, we don't do that here. Because if you go like this, it's like you're calling a prostitute. You don't want to do that. So I quickly learned when I'm in that country, I got to go like this. But another time when I was in, in the Middle East, we were in Jordan and we had an opportunity to, to uh, spend some time in, in some uh, Jordanian family homes. And, and in, in one of the things I learned there, and I forget if I've shared this before, but the bottom of the foot, I mean, we typically don't think much about it, but the bottom of our feet, I mean, they're really kind of dirty. And in, in some cultures, specifically in that Arabic Jordanian culture, if you show someone the bottom of your foot, that's an offense to them. Well, here's the challenge. Well, I'm not a small guy. I mean, you guys know that. And we like to sit on chairs. So, of course, when we're sitting in chairs, our feet are on the ground, firmly planted and no problem. But in Jordanian homes, they have what's called a majlis. 
and I can't spell that, but I, 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 it's like a family room. And instead of having couches or benches, what you end up doing is sitting on these little two-inch cushions on the floor. Well, guess what happens when your bottom is two inches off the floor? Where do your feet go? Well, in my, I'm thinking your feet are going to go right in front of you, right? But no, not in that culture, because if you do that, you've got to be aware that where the bottom of your feet are pointing, that person across from you will be offended. Well, now, now, well, what if I put my feet to my side? Well, now the person next to me is going to be offended because I've given them the bottom of my feet. I don't want to do that. So you end up sitting in kind of some funny ways just to make sure you're not offending people. There are sometimes acceptable ways that we can do things. There are acceptable actions in cross-cultural settings. And we may think, well, what, what does that have to do with anything? But as it pertains to our conversation today, I think we really have to ask the question, and really the writer of Hebrews does this for us too, is that is there an acceptable way to worship? Is there an acceptable way to worship? You see, over the last several weeks, as we've considered the, the arguments that the writer of Hebrews presents, we've seen that he's laid out this, this beautiful structure in the book that Jesus is supreme. And then he's urged us really to consider how much better he is. And because he's so much better, because he's so much greater, we need to follow those who've laid out good examples for us. And then last week we saw how we were challenged to run the race that God has appointed for for us, even though it's going to be difficult because um, the kingdom that we're running for is an unshakable kingdom. But the writer of Hebrews closes out chapter 12 in this way. Chapter 12, verses 28 and 29, he says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God. Here it is. Acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Today and next week, we're going to consider what acceptable worship looks like when it's lived out both individually and in community. But I think it's important that we, when we think about this word worship, so often we limit it to what we might call spiritual matters. What we do in this setting, the singing or the, the reading, the praying, the preaching or the liturgy or the order of worship. But we could also translate that word worship as service. We could translate that as service. And in the sacrificial system, worship or ritual service involves sacrificing animals and performing certain religious duties. And it seems like. The writer of Hebrews, after boiling down all of the previous doctrinal statements about the supremacy of Christ, is working to help us, his readers and his listeners, understand that, that acceptable worship is sacrifice, but it's not sacrifice of animals. So let's, by, let's begin by considering what acceptable worship in community might look like. And if we were to summarize this in one word, acceptable worship in community is love. Acceptable worship in community is love. You see, love is sacrifice. It's, it's a sacrifice of my wants and my desires for the benefit and blessing of someone else. Love goes out of its way, and the writer of Hebrews seems to be urging love in community in three different ways. And if you want to take notes in your outline, here's a, a couple of blanks 
But first of all, we see this charge to love one another. And we see that in, in verse 1 of chapter 13. But think about that. If you've been around scripture, you know that there's like four different Greek words for love, right? There's agape, which is the love that God has for us. It's really that unconditional love. There's phileo, which is brotherly love, which is kind of communal love with, with one another. There's another love that we don't see in scripture, but it's called storge, which is really the love that a parent would have for a child. And then there's eros, which is that romantic, that passionate love. And it might be helpful to know that the writer here uses the more familiar or communal word phileo when he tells us to love one another. In fact, he says in verse 1, he says, let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continue. In fact, in Greek, that word brotherly love is the word Philadelphia. And outside of scripture, this word is only used of people who have a common ancestry. So my brother and I would love each other brotherly. And that's the only realm in which Philadelphia would be used outside of scripture. But because of what Jesus Christ has done, our ancestral separateness, the fact that you and I are not related by blood, that becomes familial unity because of Jesus Christ. We might be separate. We might not be related to each other. We might not look like, like each other in, in any way. But because of Jesus Christ, we get to love one another as brothers should love one another. And the writer here is urging that brotherly love will continue. It must be ongoing and persistent. It must be something that is pervasive in the body of Christ. You see, here's the beauty of it. We might be divided by politics, but we are still brothers and sisters in Christ. We might be divided by ethnicities, but we are still brothers and sisters in Christ. We might be divided by socioeconomic backgrounds and standing, but we are still brothers and sisters in Christ, which makes the, which makes the body of Christ something unique in all of the world. I mean, when you think about that, people from so many different backgrounds can be together and have a common bond through Jesus Christ. There should be an elevated sense of identity with and affection for those inside the church. In fact, one commentator said that Philadelphia, that word, cannot, be by defini- cannot by definition be realized outside of the household of faith because of what Christ has done. In other words, the bond that we have with one another as the body of Christ is closer and more intimate than our bonds with our biological brothers and sisters. On the night before Jesus was crucified, he told his disciples that love, in this case, agape love, not phileo, but a love would, would be how people know that we are his disciples. And then he prayed in John 17 that we would be unified. And so what we see, I think, in this brotherly love is that it forms this unifying bond in our relationships. So in our service of worship or our acceptable worship, How are we doing in our love for one another? How are we doing? Is there unity or is there division? Are there places where we're causing up bitter fights? Or are we allowing love to cover a multitude of sins? So our acceptable worship involves 
continual brotherly love, but it also involves loving outsiders. Loving outsiders. In verse 2, it says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Think about this. Over the last several years, we've, we've heard people make a lot of the word xenophobia, right? Fear of strangers. And, and there's a lot of times when xenophobia would be cast upon as, a, as a, um, a negative comment about the way that someone was treating someone else or, or some political policy. Xenophobia became this hallmark of certain groups of people or certain political groups. But I, I bring that up because... Um, you know, it's, it, whether or not it was true, that word is out there. But there's another sense. Well, for instance, one thing I didn't know until this week is that the, the Greek word translated hospitality is very similar to xenophobia. But instead of being xenophobia, it is xenophilo. Xeno meaning stranger, philo meaning friend. So it's almost as though this sense of hospitality would be treating foreigners as friends, outsiders. If our natural response to treat uh, strangers, if our natural response is to treat strangers with fear, then the biblical response is with love or to treat them as friends. <laughs> we like to think of hospitality as entertaining. Having someone come over to your house, you going over to some of someone else's house. And one commentator noted that so often entertaining in that way is not hospitality because it comes with it. This idea of I come to your house and then sometime later you come to my house and we just have this reciprocal mutual entertaining one another. But the idea of hospitality is 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 showing love to someone who has no need has no ability to respond or to reciprocate that. Showing love to someone who, who doesn't have the means of returning the favor. Well, let's think about this in a few different ways. First of all, with orphans. I don't know if you knew this, but November is typically Orphan Awareness Month. In fact, today is Orphan Sunday. It's a day that a lot of churches around the world celebrate and, and, and mark this day. Now, I realize that not all of us are called or equipped to, to take in orphans or to care, but we can certainly be aware of what their needs are. But I guess we really have to ask, is our natural bent to move away and judge or to move toward orphans in, a, in an ability to help them? Imagine the impact that can happen when people who are growing followers of Christ are able to open their home. And care for an orphan, someone who doesn't have parents who can care for them. Maybe it's a few days or weeks, or maybe it's a few years. Reversing patterns of abuse, patterns of neglect, and providing hope through the gospel. And I love how there's a handful of families, even here in our own congregation, like the Souders and the Adams and the Hartmans, who've, who, and maybe others, who have modeled that for us, who have brought in people from other cultures, brought in people from other cities, brought in people who, who had no ability to really care for themselves. Guys, I appreciate your example in that. Let me tell you a brief story about a friend of mine. Her name is Kelly. 
Kelly was born outside of Philadelphia to a single mom, a teenage mom. Actually, Kelly is not her birth name. This teenager realized that she couldn't care for her daughter. And so she immediately put her up for adoption. And Kelly got adopted by the Phillips family, this couple. And they had they've been trying to have kids for years and just hadn't ever been able to have kids. So they brought her in. They happened to be a Catholic family. And they, they took her to mass. They took her to church, had her go through all the Catholic things. They even let her go to summer camp. And it was at one of these summer camp sessions that Kelly became a follower of Christ. Kelly grasped the reality of God's love for her and it became real for her. Years later, Kelly met a man named Jim and uh, they got married. But like her, her adopted parents, they had the same challenge. They couldn't have kids. At least they didn't think they could. And in 2008, they adopted this little boy that they called Nicholas. Nicholas was born near Baltimore. He was born, um, there's some question as to whether or not there was drug use or alcohol abuse in, while he was in his biological mom's uh, womb. But they took him in and they called him her, their own. And they welcomed him. They've raised him. They've see, sought to do so many things in his life. And Nicholas, you know, because of all those things that happened gestationally in his life, they've had a lot of challenges. But at one point in time, Nicholas was just so furious with, with life, with all sorts of things. He would even yell at his parents. He would kick and scream, put holes in the wall, do all these things. At one point in time, he said, I hate going to church. He just didn't get it. He didn't like all the people. He didn't like all the noise, all the volume, all that kind of stuff. But they found a, a group of people that he could begin to identify with him and, and and now Nicholas is at the place where he's saying, I love going to my youth group. I love hanging out with these guys. I love learning this because Kelly and Jim continued and persisted to share the love of Christ with them. I don't know if he's caught it all yet, but they opened their home. Kelly had been the recipient of someone opening their home and the gospel got presented to her. Now Nicholas is a part of this home, Kelly and Jim's home, and the gospel has been presented to him. God has since blessed um, Kelly and, and Jim with a, a daughter of, uh, of their own. And so now this family of four is, they look different because Nicholas is, he's, he's just, he looks different than his parents. But it's a beautiful family. It's a beautiful example, I think, of what it means to care for outsiders what it means to care for those who have no ability to care for themselves. But I think another area that we can think about showing love for outsiders, showing hospitality is, for instance, with refugees. There's been a lot made of this Afghanistan crisis and, and all the challenges that surround that. But, but I think one thing we have to recognize is that all of those refugees, that multiple tens of thousands of people that have come here to the United States, are victims in, in the midst of a battle between cultures, between regimes, between political powers, between various values. And these are men, women, and children who are image bearers of God. And they've come here. Many of them now reside in a nation that is very foreign to them. 
And the question I have for us is, whether Afghani or whether some other nationality, how do we respond? How do we respond when we hear about people like these Afghans who've been displaced? I've got to be honest, I've tried to reach out to different organizations to figure out what we can do tangibly as a church to really help those, and I haven't gotten very far other than sending money. Everybody wants you to send money, but nobody wants you to really get your hands in the mess to really try to help. So let me encourage you to be praying about that. Be praying, how can we as a church respond to those people? Maybe God will bring some here to Poolsville that we can love on, that we can care for, that we can show hospitality to. But see, I think another element to consider in regard to refugees or exiles is, is that exiles are very near to the heart of God. God urged the people of Israel to be sensitive to the needs of sojourners, exiles, or refugees, or strangers, since the people of Israel were once strangers in Egypt. He wanted to re- them to remember over and over, don't forget you were in Egypt, don't forget when you were in that foreign land that I cared for you, so you care for the foreigners. And even in the New Testament, the idea of strangers and aliens becomes a, a key factor In Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul references us as having formerly been aliens and strangers in regard to citizenship in the kingdom of God. And yet now we've been welcomed. And so because we've been welcomed as citizens into the kingdom of God, now we are aliens and strangers to the world around us. They don't get what we're apart, what we're about. Even in the letters that Peter wrote to the elect exiles, the people of God, He wrote those to the people of God who were dispersed and who were in exile. And since we are strangers to this world, we should be extra sensitive to to the needs of strangers around us. I think being willing to take them and care for them. Assist with their needs and more. But there's one other element of this that I think we need to think about, and that is our neighbors. And now we think neighbors, wait, wait, neighbors, um, I should love my neighbor. I know my neighbor, but do we really know our neighbors? Do we really know those people closest to us? I got to tell you, I I don't. In fact, I've been, we've lived in town now a year and a half and I finally met one of my neighbors up, uh, just two doors up across the street. His name is Jeff. I finally met him like last week. I'm like, oh man, I'm a horrible neighbor. And there's still a couple of folks on my little court that we haven't met yet. But how are we doing loving those who are nearest to us, those who are strange to us? You know, we tell our kids to be wary of strangers, but the Bible tells us to love strangers. So brotherly love for one another and hospitable love towards strangers are key, are key elements of our worship. But the writer of Hebrews also challenges us to love the outcasts. In Hebrews 13.3, and he doesn't really use the word love here, but all of the concepts of love are right there. Look at what he says in verse 3. He says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you you also are in the body. And while being mindful of prisoners is important, the author here seems to be referring to people who have been imprisoned for their faith. A specific group of prisoners. A specific group of people. These are outcasts because of persecution. These are outcasts. These outcasts are being mistreated for their faith. 
But notice there's a sense in which the peop- in which we should em- empathize with these people as though we're in prison with them. And since we are part of the same body, I don't think we fully get this now because persecution here in the States is not like it is elsewhere. And in the first century, there's a very real possibility that people would be ostracized, that people would be persecuted and thrown in prison for their faith. Our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world experience that in ways that we don't fully get. But I want us to make sure that we're aware that we are like our our antenna are tuned in to the needs of the persecuted around us, the needs of the persecuted around the world. And really, I think as a means of helping these believers have a personal connection, the writer of Hebrews points out in verse 23 that Timothy, who was in prison, had been released, hoping that they would rejoice with him at his release. So in community, our acceptable worship involves continual brotherly love and involves hospitality to strangers and it involves love for the persecuted. But as we begin to look at acceptable worship on an individual basis, we could summarize that with also one word. And that word is contentment. If if in community that word is love, individually it's contentment. And when it comes to contentment, the writer of Hebrews focuses on two areas. And the first of which is contentment sexually. Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. You know, I I don't know exactly what the writer of Hebrews was dealing with. There there was obviously something happening around the church, something happening in the culture that made him want to apply this acceptable way of living and acting in this way. Maybe it was promiscuity before marriage. Maybe it was adultery from within marriage. Maybe it was just a general low view of marriage. something like what our society has today. Our society has generally taken the the viewpoint of, well, why go through all the trouble of getting married? It's easier just to be together and then if something, you you just break up. But whatever the case, he is urging that marriage be honored, that it be revered, and that it be pure. And I got to tell you, he uses some strong language here to, to note that God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Ultimately, God will judge all sin, and through Jesus Christ, He provides forgiveness for all of that sin. But that forgiveness doesn't mean that we have a license to be promiscuous. So what, is it, what does He mean by sexual, sexually immoral and adulterous? Well, I'm glad you asked. He uses two different words here that relate to the sexual relationships outside of marriage. That first one is adultery, or the second one, rather, is adultery. And that's pretty simple. We know what that is. If you're married and you sleep with someone who's not your spouse, that's adultery. We saw that in the Old Testament with David, one of the biggest, most clear examples of that anywhere. But what about this other word, sexually immoral? You see, that has a broader range of meaning. It has a a whole variety of, of implications there. In fact, the Greek word there is pornos, which, as you guessed it, is where our word pornography comes from. I think sexually immoral involves things like incest. It involves things like sexual relationships before marriage. 
homosexual relationships, and yes, even pornography. You see, our our society would have us think that any kind of sex at any time with anyone is okay. And they have gone so far as to normalize pornography and even celebrate a variety of sexual expressions. But the writer of Hebrews is urging us as the people of God to honor the marriage bed, to honor that sacred union. He doesn't go into detail as to why, but when we consider how marriage is described elsewhere in Scripture, we can see that marriage mirrors our relationship with God. In fact, in the Old Testament, when the people of Israel were said to go and worship other idols, they were said to be committing adultery against God. And in the New Testament, in Ephesians 5, Paul talks about how the way that husbands and wives relate to one another corresponds to how Christ relates to to the church. And so I, I, I want to make sure that, that we're aware. You know, some people would say that, well, the biblical ethic is just a recommendation. It's just wisdom. And I got to tell you, as I read this, he's not mincing any words. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. The only relationship, the only sexual encounter that God endorses is the one that is in the bonds of marriage between a husband and a wife. Everything else would be, I think, considered either adultery or sexual immorality, which God does not condone. It runs counter to our society and everybody around is probably thinking, oh, you guys are just prudes. There the Baptists go preaching about morality again. It's what's in the text. And God has given us that for a reason. So I want to make sure that we show contentment, that we are content living our lives sexually the way that God has ordained it. I think it's for our benefit, for our blessing. It honors Him. But not only does He encourage us to show contentment sexually, He also shows, encourages us to show contentment materially. In in verses 5 and 6, he says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So as with sexual matters, it's so easy to get caught up into what our society says. Our society is all about the next car. It's about the bigger house and those nicer clothes or that better vacation and the bigger bank account. And in and of themselves, those things are all okay. But it's a matter, I think, of our motivation or our passion. When when we get these things out of whack, when our whole identity is wrapped up in getting getting and getting and getting and getting and getting. I heard some time ago that John Wesley, the founder, one of the founders of the Methodist church, was out preaching somewhere and someone got a telegram to him and got word to him. He said, John, your house has burned down. And John replied, so the Lord's house has burned down. I've got one less responsibility. Yay. And he was free. He felt free of that obligation because if you know, as we gather stuff, now we got to take care of it. Now we have to take care of the, all those cars and all those things. I remember talking to a guy several years ago who had dozens of, of vehicles. And he made this comment. He said, do you know how many starters are in all of my vehicles? 
And if they all start going out, I'm, I'm in a world of hurt because I've got to go fix and fix and fix and fix and fix. And all this accumulation of stuff becomes a burden to us rather than a blessing. And I think ultimately for both of these areas, it seems like it comes down to a matter of trust. Do we trust in God's ways? Do we trust in God's plan in marriage that it will meet our, our needs and desire physically? Do we trust that God's provision will meet our material needs? We need stuff. We need to have a few things. We've got to have a place to live. We've got to have clothes on our bodies. We've got to have food in our bellies. And he knows that we need that. But I guess the question becomes, are we using the surplus in our budgets to make life more comfortable? Or are we making those extra resources available to the Lord? Do we trust that God is good and will provide? Let me just close with a couple final thoughts. You see, at the outset of this chapter, we learn that the writer of Hebrews urged us to offer to God acceptable worship or service. And rather than getting into the logistical rituals, he addresses how we need to live in community and live individually. And next week, we're going to look at one other element of this communal living. But does it seem strange that he would take all that we have learned about the supremacy of Christ, that Jesus is greater than all of these things that we've been looking at, greater than the angels, the Moses, the law, the covenant, all the sacrifices, the priests, all these things, and then boil down the application to these two areas of life couched in the conversation and the concept of worship. And I think that when we consider what Jesus did by taking our sin on his life on the cross and paying the eternal consequences on our behalf, we are then freed from religious activity, from ritual activity. We are freed from regular sacrificial offerings. We are freed from religious obligations. And now we are free to love one another. We are free to love the outsiders and the vulnerable. We are showing them the love of Christ. We are free to love those who are being persecuted rather than assuming that they must have done something wrong. And we get to trust in God's good provision in our marriages for those who've been called to marriage. I recognize some have been called to singleness. And that is a, a beautiful picture of what God has called you to as well. But we also get to trust God in our material wealth. And then, see, here's the beauty as it comes together. When we gather in worship, when we gather in places like this, we get to gather in thanksgiving for all that God has done, in joy for, for what he has done and what he continues to do and the wisdom with which he laid down his guidance for us in his word. We get to walk without remorse and we get to preach to a watching world with our actions. So let us offer to God love and contentment as our acceptable worship, demonstrating gratitude and trust, believing that he is sovereign and in control. Let, let's pray together. Father, we do thank you so much for all that you've done. Lord, we thank you for this encouragement from your word that we might and how we should live and how we should offer to you a sacrificial worship. 
in community, and in our lives individually. Lord, help us to demonstrate our trust by ordering our lives in the way that you've called us to. We ask this in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we often do the first, not often, we try to do every first Sunday of the month, we're going to take some time to celebrate what we call the Lord's Supper or Communion. And the last several months we've had people walk forward today, we're, uh, the elders and are going to be distributing the elements. So you guys can just remain where you are. Essentially, if you're, if, I know most of you are familiar with this, but what happened the night before Jesus was crucified, he took some bread and he said, this is my body. This is really a picture of my body, which is broken for you. And he took a cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. So in a few moments, as the, as the elements are passed around, I want to encourage you to take a cup that has some bread and take a cup that has some juice and just hold on to it. And while the music is playing, just allow it to be an opportunity for you to ponder areas where your life might be out of alignment with what God has done for you through Jesus Christ. But also, let me encourage you to use it as an opportunity to, to offer up thanks to God. For the fact that he, the God of the universe, thought enough of you and me to send his son, his perfect son, to die on the cross, that we might be in a relationship with him. So elders, would you come forward and let me pray over this? And then uh, we will distribute these together. Father, we do thank you so much for the life that we have through Jesus Christ. We thank you for his Jesus, for your salvation, for your sacrifice on our behalf. We just ask that you would be, you would help us to understand afresh all that you've done for us. We ask this in your holy name. Amen. Amen.